When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. It is June the 20th. It's a Monday, folks. You know that feeling. You can feel it kind of crawling up the back of your neck. I got to get back at it. I'm thrilled to be at it. Glad you are with us. Appreciate you joining us here on Hertel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. It's going to be a great week of turning down the noise. If you missed anything from last week, make sure you go back and check on it. As always, subscribing is free. We got a lot to cover on today's show. Uh, Uvalde, there is some new information out of there. And actually, it's about information of how we're not getting any new information. And it's very telling. We'll go down to Uvalde touch in on that case also we've covered sri lanka on and off over the last few months for a lot of reasons mainly because there's a lot of international geopolitical news that converges there and there's a lot of lessons to learn from it there's another update on sri lanka they're going to go to work from home to try to alleviate the transportation situation they're running out of fuel they're running out of food now they're having government and educational employees work from home we'll talk about sri lanka in a little bit coming up on the program our guest today Great guests returning to the program, Gary and Frankel. We're going to talk a little bit about Latinos. Uh, We're going to talk about the Latinx nonsense that seems to have ended a little bit, but we're also going to get into the politics of Latinos. Uh, The demographic numbers are out. The Latino population in America is not only growing, it's one of the most diverse populations, but it doesn't get covered that way. We'll go to Gary and we're going to talk to him, especially the Rio Grande Valley. We just saw the special election in the 34th district for Texas flipped red to a Republican Hispanic for the first time since antebellum times, 150 years ago. This is telling. We've covered it before. We're going to get into it with Gary and Frankel, Latinos, race, Chicanos, all kinds of good stuff. Also, why can't we talk about race like adults in America? We'll get into that a little bit as well. Uh, Gary and Frankel, great guests today. But first, uh, let's talk about how the news is covered. It's kind of the core bone DNA kind of stuff to our program. The news doesn't get covered right in a lot of ways. So we said, we're going to do it ourselves, try to do a little better job of it. No caterwaul and no shouting. We have a perfect example of how news media gets related here. It comes from Fox News, not picking on them. They just happen to be the guilty party here. Headline, I'll read a quote. We'll link to it in the show notes as always. Disney World employee among 12 arrested in undercover child sex predator sting. Oh my God, that's terrible. Let's get the pitchforks, right? Hold on. All right, first of all, sex predators are among the lowest of human life. They should be prosecuted to the maximum extent of the law. So go ahead and just let's get that out of the way first. We understand that's a terrible crime and needs to be prosecuted. But let's break down this headline for a second because it's telling to how news is not news. The news media business is to get a reaction out of you. There was one person that's listed in this article out of those 12 people, and he's the Disney employee. Well, if you do a percentage, that's a really low percentage, one out of 12, right? 
So why did they focus on him? Well, it's called SEO, search engine optimization. I do this for ordinary times. I also do it when I submit op-eds to outside uh, places. They run it. They want certain words because it, it hits the search engine. So if you're looking for sex predators, Disney, arrested, those words all hit really big, especially Disney World words right now, slip of the tongue, because Disney's been all over the news for a lot of different reasons, a lot of cultural reasons. So if you keep hitting Disney, everybody knows what Disney is. That's an optimized word. Everybody with me so far? So let's break this down. They do this whole 800-word piece on this one Disneyland employee. They don't mention any of the other 11. Why? Because it doesn't make them any money. That doesn't search engine and optimize. So you go dig into here a little bit and find out that this guy is a Disney World employee. There's 80,000 Disney World employees alone. Just at Disney World, that's not counting a couple thousand that are employed in Florida doing other things. That's not including tens of thousands out in California and tens of thousands more worldwide. There's 80,000 employees, but this one's a sex criminal, so he gets the headline. He was a bus driver. He's not one of the costume characters that are hugging kids all day. That might be what's in your mind, but that's why the headline's written that way to get your attention. Now, he did some horrifically stupid things here. He was, uh, turns out he was texting and sexting uh, with an undercover detective who was posing as a 15-year-old girl. That's a horrible crime. He needs to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law for it. Needless to say, he won't be driving the buses at Disney World anymore. But this is how news media works. They take a story and try to make it as personalized to you as possible to get you engaged on it. Of course, we should be outraged at child sex predators. The fact that he's a Disney employee checks a whole lot of boxes. And that's why stories like this get so big. And then when you dig into it, you find out, well, wait a minute. What about the other 11 people? They were the majority here. They're not Disney employees. Fox is very smart. They're a great business model. They're one of the most lucrative news media business models we've ever seen. They've mastered this sort of thing. And everybody else does it. I do it for ordinary times. We optimize words. What you as a news consumer need to do is understand when that's happening. Does the arrest of a Disney employee really affect your life? Not really, but it sure does affect your online life because this crosses all sorts of streams, especially for Fox News, which is predominantly an audience on the right. They're real mad at Disney right now. There's all kinds of Disney stories going on. There's a lot of social and economic and political news that are crossing streams when it comes to Disney World. So that's why it does. It tickles that stream. It tickles your ears and it sucks you in. Yes, sex crime's a horrible law, but those other 11 people were also horrible. But they don't get you motivated to go click on the link. Fox News did because it's Disney. You have to understand that news manipulates your emotions. Everybody does it. They don't talk about it, though. So understand when you see these headlines, they are tailored made not only for you to read them, but to share them, click on them and get outraged about it. because then you'll click on the next one over and over again. It's fine to consume this stuff. It's like anything else. Moderation. Understand what you're doing, understanding why you're consuming it and understand what you should do with it as you've consumed it. These stories are bad, but they're not the end of the world and they're almost always never in context. Be aware of how the news media manipulates you. This is a perfect example of it. I hope he goes to jail for a very long time, and I hope everybody else keeps their bearing and understands that one out of 12 or one out of 80,000 needs to be kept in proper perspective no matter how bad it was. We'll do more Hertel right after this.
Welcome back to Hertel. Let's go down to Uvalde. This story gets worse the more you dig into it. Uh, this is from Vice, uh, partnering with Motherboard. I'm just going to read it because otherwise I'm going to say words that the FCC don't approve of. The city of Uvalde and its police department are working with private law firm to prevent the release of nearly any recording related to the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in which 19 children and two teachers died. According to a letter obtained by Motherboard, that's a vice derivative, in response to a series of public information requests, the public records of Uvalde is trying to suppress include, pay very close attention to this list, folks. They want to suppress body camera footage, photos, 911 calls, emails, text messages, criminal records, and more. Basically, that's everything. The city, this is a quote, has not voluntarily released any information to a member of the public. The city lawyer, Cynthia Trevino, who works for the private law firm Denton Navarro Roach, Rocha, Bernal, and Zeke, wrote in a letter to Texas Attorney General Kim Paxton. The city wrote the letter asking Paxton for a determination about what information it is required to release for the public, which is standard practice in Texas. We've seen this in other stories. It's a little complicated when you get into body cam footage and things, but nevertheless. Paxton's office, back to Vice, will eventually rule which of the city's government's arguments have merit and which will determine if any public records is released. The letter makes quite clear, however, the city and its police department want to be exempted from virtually everything. Uh, release a wide variety of records, in part because it's being sued, in part because some of the records could include, quote, highly embarrassing information, and part of some of the information is not, quote, not of legitimate concern to the public, quote, in part because the information could reveal methods, techniques, and strategies preventing and predicting. Hold on, let's stop right here. I don't think the public needs methods, techniques, and strategies for how they stood in the hallway for an hour while Chris kids died. I don't think we need the specifics on that. I think we do need specifics on why these cowardly bureaucrats with guns who call themselves cops did nothing for an hour while these children die. I'm over this mess. Go ahead and send all the tweets you want. They're hiding stuff. Now, there's certain parts of this video that you do not want seen. We don't need to see the mangled bodies of the children out of respect for the villagers, the victims, and the families. That's one thing. They want to block everything. They don't want you to know anything about what the officials did here or the official response. They know they're going to get sued to high heaven. They know they high, have high culpability, but nobody's taking any accountability. There should have been a wave of resignations after Uvalde. Everybody involved should have probably took a good look, and especially the people that made the command decision should have resigned on the spot if they had any kind of integrity whatsoever. They don't. But what's even more shocking is the fact that they haven't, looking at you, Pete Arivaldo, the chief that was supposedly in charge but says he wasn't in charge, why haven't you resigned? I don't care that you're on city council now. You're unfit for office. You shouldn't have anything because you refuse to answer any questions. The fact that it is seemingly fine with so many people that we haven't seen a rash of resignations and demanded that these leaders who were in charge are no longer in charge of anything, and they're going to run out the clock, and they're going to hide behind legalese, and they're going to lawyer up, and they're going to hope people forget, and they can hold on to their pensions, and they can hold on to their cushy little jobs with great benefits that don't require a whole lot of work. I'm sick of this, but apparently not enough people are sick of it because we continue to tolerate it. The fact that they're hiding behind the legal law to hide the information on how incompetent they were so that they can continue to stay in the same jobs again and again and again is frighteningly bad. It's frightening that it's happening. It's more frightening nobody seems to care. These are not cops. They're bureaucrats with guns. And you saw what happened when you call for help from bureaucrats with guns. You get a body count. 
and they're going to continue to get their pension anyway, whether they did the job or not. It's sickening. It's wrong. They should be ashamed of themselves. And the rod in Uvalde runs deep. And I highly suspect if we look at police departments around this country, we're going to find a lot of the same rod everywhere else. We should probably do something about it before it involves the blood of children. More hotel right after this. back to her tell okay it's been a minute since he's here but he is back he's back with a vengeance he's all fired up about this one we're going to talk a little latino we're going to talk a little latinx we're going to talk a little chicano we're going to talk a whole lot of texas so deep from the heart of texas my friend gary and frankel how are you sir good to have you back hey good to be back thanks for having me andrew i'm doing well i always enjoy talking to you my friend okay um the latinx thing Let's just parse it out this way. You have a great piece out in the James G. Martin Center about it, but let's just parse it this way. We saw the census data. We know the Latino numbers in America from the census data. They're not the largest group demographically growing. That would be Asian Americans. But buried in that data is, I think, the core of this problem. The growing Latino population in America is not only growing, we found out from the census, it's also one of the most diverse populations in america isn't that just kind of the core problem of this is we have a buzzword for latino and then everybody puts things on it but this is really a diversifying demographic um yeah absolutely that that definitely does get at the heart of the issue some um just to give a short illustration somebody who is mexican-american living in south texas is going to be completely different from someone who's Cuban living in Miami, and they're both going to be completely different than somebody who's Puerto Rican and living in the Bronx. And there, and while there are some labels that are broadly acceptable, like Hispanic or Latino, the seeming effort to put everybody into one team or one camp has caused a lot of hostility among people of Hispanic origin like myself. And, you know, as much as the left talks about colonialism and imperialism, it's essentially what they're doing by trying to compartmentalize an entire group of people. Yeah, this actually sparked something when I was reading your piece. and I had to go dig for it because I got, you know, uh, brain damage, so I forget things. But we have Google to fill in the blanks. I found it. I went back and looked an NPR article back from 2021. When the census data came out, all the, the demographic geeks kind of lost their mind because something like 50 million American marked some other race. And then when they dug into the numbers, I'm reading from NPR here, nationwide, some 45 million Latinos recorded as identifying with a mysterious alternative to what the federal government considers to be the major racial groups. 45 million of them mark some form and fashion of some other race, but then they go and talk to people. They have a, a gentleman named Alvarez. He said, he said, well, I didn't see Hispanic and I didn't see Guatemalan, so I put some other race. Uh, they have another guy who's Cuban, same thing. He's like, well, I didn't see Cuban or Floridian, which I thought that was really hilarious. He said Floridian. Uh, he said, so I went some other race. 
people are going to self-identify how they want to identify. Is this one of those things where the government is not keeping up with the diversification of a large pluralistic society? Because 45 million Latinos saying the government isn't identifying us correctly. I think we're seeing pretty quickly where academia and then academia floods in the government pretty quickly. You know this, you're one of those academic people right now. Those two people talk a lot. Those folks in the Rio Grande Valley and Little Havana in Miami, they don't talk a lot. And that's where that shows up, isn't it? Uh, to a certain extent, yes. I think everybody in the scenario that you just described is talking, but the problem is that they're not talking to each other. All the academics and the government elites are talking to one another and they're using their words and their compartmentalizations to describe tens of millions of people, whereas the tens of millions of people that they're attempting to describe have their own ideas, their own identity, and and how they see themselves is not reflected on the Census Bureau. I mean, I put... Whenever my family is putting on putting on the sentence for um, my mother, my for my mother and I anyway, and we mark white and Hispanic or Latino. But if we had an option to put down Texan, we would. <laughs> you know, I get that. You know, I'm I'm you know I'm as Caucasian as Caucasian gets. You know, I'm a hillbilly from West Virginia. But I we run into this because like when I when I lived out west, everybody thought you know if you have an accent, you come from Texas for whatever reason. But if I'm in the South, people think, oh, you're Southern. I'm like, well, no, I'm Appalachian. That's a whole distinct, different beast. Um, It covers part of the South, but that goes, you know, parts of Maine, really, depending on which definition you want to use. I'm like, you know, I'm a West Virginian. I'm a hillbilly. I'm an Appalachian American. Those are all real distinct, meaningful things to me. I've never seen any of those on any government form ever. You know, it's always Caucasian. So this isn't just a Latino thing or a white thing or a black thing or an Asian thing or whatever. Do we have something where we just have a hard time talking about identity in a meaningful way? Is this is this a government problem? Is it a cultural problem? What do you think we need to do to kind of do a little bit better with this? Because identity, we've seen it with culture war stuff. Identity is really, really important to people, and they get twisted about it really, really fast if you get it wrong. Yep. Yeah, it's a, it's a government problem. It's a culture problem. It's all of the above. And while I think that there are individual organizations and institutions that have found some kind of solution, I remember um, back in high school when I was submitting my uh, application to be a National Hispanic Merit Scholar. This was a long time ago already. But at the time, they were already able to categorize it based on pretty much any type of Hispanic identity that somebody might come up with. They had pretty much every country of Hispanic origin on there. And that, you know, that's a better model in that sense. But the problem with some of these models of that work is that you can't expand them to occupy everything, everybody and everything, because there's also the argument on the other side that to a certain extent for data collection study purposes, you do have to categorize people and you can only have so many categories before everything just gets really chaotic. Yeah. Gary and Frankel joining us on Herd Tell back again. It's been a minute, man. It's been too long. We'll have you back on sooner. I promise. Uh, you use a great example from your own family, uh, the Chicano culture down in t- especially Texas, New Mexico, the border areas. This is a distinctive thing. It has its own music. It has its own culture. Uh, It's even got language variations now that they've identified. When you went to write about this with Latinx, you kind of, you know, went home to kind of explain this to folks. 
explain to people who may not be familiar with it, uh, Chicano culture, what that means to you as somebody that claims that identity. Just kind of explain it to people and then why that's so important to you when you go to talk about something like a Latino Latinx labeling. Yeah, well, just for some historical background, the Chicano movement was very strong among Mexican-Americans living in the southwestern border regions, specifically about 50, 60 years ago. And it started as a social movement to um, rectify political and economic injustices. And, you know, we talk a lot about injustices and justice now, but there are some real problems going on in the area. In the area, there was a critical systemic lack of political representation in these areas. You still had lingering effects of segregation. You had no services whatsoever in public schools for kids and their families who had just come over the border from Mexico, spoke little, if any, English. And suddenly you had to adjust and account for these individuals and the systems and institutions at the time weren't doing that. So the Chicano movement really had three goals. And one was improving political representation. One was improved labor rights, specifically for farm workers. And the third was to uh, increase Spanish language representation in public schools. So what you have is a defined movement with very, very targeted individuals that subscribe to the identity being invoked. And they had real political goals that were tangible and had benefits for normal people outside of the academic and political elite. And when you look at the Latinx movement, on the other hand, you're dealing with a small nebulous group of people that for the most part only exist in academia. And they're trying to change a fundamental aspect of a language into something that's completely incomprehensible in either Spanish or English. Yeah. Gary and Frankel joining us. So that's the 50 years of the 50, 60 years of the Chicano movement. Fast forward to today, and the Rio Grande Valley is ground zero for a real political kind of earthquake because I'm a little older than you. So I remember the 90s and 2000s when the Democratic Party was pushing demographics or destiny. Uh, the Republicans are guilty of this too, but they, they kind of started it and then the Republicans reacted to it. It was, you know, all these various uh, groups of color and outsiders are going to come in and they're going to naturally become Democrats. And our, <clears throat> excuse me. And our buddy Mark uh, Yizagiri has been writing about this at Ordinary Times. We'll link to it in the show notes. He pointed this out. We just saw this last week with Myra Flores flipping the 34th yeah. district for the first time since antebellum post-Civil War, the first time a Republican won down there. And he pointed it out. He's like, you got to understand the Latino culture down here. The Latinos are the cops. The Latinos are the small business owners. They are the city councilmen. <coughs> so you have the academics, which always skews way more progressive or saying this one thing. You can't say to fund the police because all the cops are Latino. How is that going to go? So it's not a wave movement kind of thing. But instead of 10, 11, 13 percent Latinos going more conservative or Republican. Now it's getting that 28. 29, 30%. That's a big culture shift politically that, you know, we're talking about an academic terminology, but that's where this stuff actually shows up and there's movement and it 
seems to keep growing. Same thing in South Florida, you know, that you're starting to see 30, 32, 33%. How does that feel for you as somebody who's in that area? You're from that area. You study in that area. Is, is this really getting talked about locally? Like it, the national people are starting to catch on to it locally. Does it feel that way or does it feel just like a natural evolution? Well, I, I will preface by saying that while my mom is from the border area, I grew up in Dallas. So even though it's the same state, you do have a little bit of uh, removal from it. But, you know, real Dallas, from- not South Fork Dallas, real Dallas, right? <laughs> North Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about 20 minutes north of downtown. (laughs) But anyway, I got family down there. I got friends down there. I've been down there on plenty of occasions. And it feels completely different than it did just five or 10 years ago. Um, You know, I, I used to have a much more active role in conservative politics in Texas before I went in the policy direction. But there is a saying that, you know, Tejanos and Hispanics more broadly are Republicans. They just don't know it yet. Well, <laughs> they figured it out. And I, yeah, there's a lot of reasons why this happened. Some of it is firmly within the control or lack thereof of control of the Texas Democratic Party. Some of it had to do with outside factors. Some of it had to do with social media. But there is a real shift going on in South Texas. And I, I think the last, I think the election of Maida Flores for one, as well as um, some of the municipal elections previously proved that what we saw in 2020 is not going away. It's, it's already a durable shift. And I don't see any indications that it's not going to continue. Yeah, Gary and Frankel, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to keep talking about this. We're going to compare that Latinx movement to the Chicano movement again, real world versus academic problems. Also, Gary uh, deals with education a lot. And we're going to talk about the economic part of this because people talk demographics. Really what they need to be talking about is the economic uh, stratospheres of these folks. More with our buddy Gary and Frankel right after this on Hurtel. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Going back to Hurtel, we were talking about San Antonio and getting wistful there for a minute, so sorry about that, folks. One of America's great cities, nobody, go to San Antonio. Just trust me, I've been there a whole lot over the years. Great, great city. But anyway, let's talk about that Texas thing a little bit. You wrote in your piece, James G. Martin Center, we linked to it in the show notes. Make sure you read the whole thing for yourself. But really the nut of this is the Latinx movement is an academic problem, you know, solution looking for a problem. The Chicano movement succeeded because, like you said, 
It was civil rights. It was voting rights. It was real world stuff. It was economic advantages. It was things like that. And that just naturally drove people because they're like, no, dang it, we deserve better and we're going to do it. That's really the heart of this, isn't it, is because you have these natural movements for people that want their lives better. And then you have people that have lives where they're trying to find something to do with themselves to make things better. Is that just basically the basic nuts of this? Yeah, pretty much. Um, A collection of academics, many of whom are white and very progressive politically, decided that the fact that Spanish is a gendered language, like so many other languages in the world, uh, was problematic and not inclusive to people who don't identify with the traditional gender binary. And so the solution in their minds, and it's unclear exactly where the word comes from, started popping up in a couple journal articles about 15, 17 years ago. It may have also started in an internet chat room, but whatever it was, it was a firmly academic problem for a solution that affects a very, very, very small amount of people. And the solution is to change an entire language, of course. Yeah, I mean, the Romance Latin-based languages, which is a large portion of the you know Western-speaking languages, I, I, I'm perfectly happy to be respectful to anybody who asks me to do whatever they want language-wise and identity-wise and pronoun-wise. I got no problem. I'll, I'm happy to accommodate you however I can to make Same you happy. Here. But, you know, changing the language for three and four and five hundred million people because of an O and an A on the end of the vowels. And I'm not real great at grammar. Um, I'm a community college kid. That that just seems like such a gross overreaction to something. Um, and it's like you said with earlier with the Chicano movement, though, people want their jobs. They want their livelihoods. They want that. They just don't have time to really fool with a lot of stuff like that, do they? No, they don't. And the people in Hispanic communities around the United States are extremely hardworking, um, very, very insistent on reliability and personal responsibility. Very family oriented. Very um, family oriented. Usually very spiritualistic, whether it's, you know, the traditionally it was more Catholic, it's got trended more spiritualistic, but very family oriented, very spiritualistic, very, you know, you know, if you took it and put it in a bunch of white guys like me, you would call those traditional conservative values, right? It just uh, it looks it, different. Absolutely. You would absolutely call them traditional conservative values. And then suddenly you have this small collection of progressive academics trying to, and of course, many, many, if not most, uh, People in those areas now are native English speakers, but even so, you'll hear a lot of Spanish in those areas. And suddenly you've got you've got the small groups of academics who want to change all of that because Latin X just sounds weird in English. And in Spanish, it would be like Latin J, Latin Hedge makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And the funniest part about all of this is that. People who are non-binary from the Spanish-speaking world have developed their own alternatives for the traditional gender binary that make three times as much sense in both the Spanish and English languages, and yet nobody in the United States is paying attention to them at all. Yeah, maybe we should just defer to them and let them pick their own thing and just go off that. I'm good with that. Um, Put your academic hat on for a second for me. 
Um, we know that not only do we have racial issues in America, the bigger problem is we just have no seemingly way to talk about racial issues in America. When it comes to the Latino population, where are we at on the race relation edge of it? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Is there still widespread discrimination? I, you know, the Rio Grande Valley is about as integrated Latino population as I think you're going to find about anywhere. I mean, it, you know, they, it, it just is like, it just, you know, I am that I am kind of stuff. Right. How should we be talking about this? Is there, I'm sure there's still problems there, but what are the problems what are the problems that were in the past that are new? Just kind of walk me through it. How should we be discussing the issues of race when it comes to Latinos in America, especially in an area like the Rio Grande Valley that's going to be a real political hotbed probably for the next couple of election cycles? Yeah, and it's hard because Hispanic and Latino origin, it's not a race, it's an ethnic origin. You can be Hispanic or Latino and white. You can be Hispanic or Latino and mixed. You can be Hispanic or Latino and black. And if you go to places like Argentina, there's a very healthy population of people who are of Hispanic origin and they're Asian. And that just adds an extra layer of complexity to talking about those issues in general. I mean, if you look at me, my last name is Frankel and I look as about as Caucasian as they come, but nevertheless, I'm Hispanic. Um, when it comes to race relations, and I'm going to use these terms very generally between non-Hispanic whites and Hispanics, uh, they used to be a lot worse going back 60, 70 years. They were victims of segregation and oppression as well. But if you look at things nowadays, at least in everywhere that I've been, um, aside from the occasional racist idiot at Walmart who doesn't like hearing people speak Spanish. It's really not something that people talk or think about anymore. Um, especially in somewhere like Texas, the Hispanic community has just become so integrated and you can't really talk about Texas or Texan culture without talking about the Hispanic community, that you don't really see a lot of those tensions or problems anymore. Yeah, Gary and Frankel, I'm glad you brought that up because of this reason. We just had Daniel DiMartino on the show a couple episodes ago, and he made the same comment. He's like, look, Argentina, white kids, black kids, it's not an issue. Never even thought about it. I come to America. Now I got to think about it. And it's right there. And America deals with it differently. Uh, our buddy Holden, Dominican Republic, same thing. He's like, yeah, white kids, black kids, it's no big deal. You come to America, all of a sudden it's a problem. Um, we're getting ready to have, we're going to talk to one of our UK friends about this, you know, you know, racist problem and ethnicity problems. Those are universal things, but they really do manifest really, really differently based on your culture. And I would say, and I think, I think part of this that we want to circle back to where we started with the Rio Grande Valley and the Chicano culture is it, we, when we talk about race, we tend to disassociate it from class and economics, but you really can't because it all goes hand to hand. And the more economically diverse and the more economically raised the Chicano and Latino population has become, the less race problems you have. That's just the facts of the matter. Economic freedom is freedom, and it's also freedom from a lot of prejudice and racism because it empowers you. I think that's the angle of this that we just don't talk about enough. You have ties in that area. Does that feel the same way with you when you talk about the the idiot at Walmart? Like eventually he just sees enough Latino people. He learns to get over it and grow up. You know, is that what this is on a practical level? 
Yeah. And even if he never learns to get over it and grow up, at the very least, he will learn to shut up. Um, <laughs> no, but when you look at the economic profile of the Rio Grande Valley, it's small business owners, it's people working in the oil industry, it's law enforcement is a major employer in that area. And it's very, it, it constitutes a very similar economic profile to a lot of Texas that is majority non-Hispanic white. And because of that, the cultural and political differences between those areas are starting to evaporate a little bit and become more one and the same because you really, it really isn't like going to a different world. When you go from somewhere like the Dallas suburbs to the Rio Grande Valley, you're still in Texas and you know that you're still in Texas. It's still very Texan and people don't recognize that enough in their obsession with identity, especially in academia. Now, Texas ain't subtle. We'll, we'll definitely give them that much of it. Uh, Gary and Frankel, one last thing to kind of loop this back to where we started and put a bow on it. Um, we, we understand academics do things like this Latino, Latinx thing. We understand it becomes a political thing because of that. On the grassroots level, grassroots is the wrong word. On the, the Rio Grande Valley level at the Walmart level, let's call it that. Um, where's the identity of those folks going? Like you said, like you would probably identify Texan and Latino and identify that way. This has changed a lot in the last five and 10 years, like you mentioned. What's the next five and 10 years hold for this demographic group, do you think? Well, already, if you talk to a lot of the people down there, they, I mean, sure, they're of predominantly Mexican origin, but if you ask them what they consider themselves, they're going to say Texan. They're going to say American. And, you know, that's a large chunk of the people there. And while I don't think that's necessarily going to change much in the next five to 10 years, because you already have a process that's happened, what I do think is going to change is that they're going to be a lot louder about it, because suddenly they need to be a lot louder about it when it wasn't necessary previously. Gary and Frankel, great stuff. I I think this is the healthier way for us to talk about things like race and demographics and ethnicities. You have to take it as an all of the above approach. You got to talk about the economics. You got to talk about the cultural. You got to talk about the historical. And then you go to the political. And I think too much of our discourse, we're doing that backwards where we start with the political and then you lose all the perspective. And then all of a sudden you get shocked and shaken when, you know, um, Myra Flores flips the seat and like, well, wait a minute, that's not supposed to happen. It's like, well, no, if you're paying attention, it was coming and it was like the steamroller in Austin Powers. It was coming slowly and exhortably, <laughs> and it finally got here. So I appreciate this conversation. We're going to keep having it uh, until we get you back on Hertel again, which will be sooner than the four months it was this time, I promise. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you, follow you on your social media and what you got going on, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. You can follow my writing very frequently with Chalkboard Review and the American Institute for Economic Research. And as far as social media goes, um, my Twitter is literally my last name and then my first name. And I'm very active. Unmute. There it went. Uh, he's a Texas A&M guy, too. So you can make a joke about how many uh, Gary and Frankels it takes to do light bulbs and so forth. That's up to you. Uh, but go ahead and get your shot in there. You are a graduate student at A&M. Uh, Jimbo got a little rowdy a little earlier in the year, made some headlines. Uh, 
people going to go looking for you on the field this year? How's that going to shake out, you think? Uh, I love my coach. I'm, I'm just going to say that. <laughs> no, I think there are – I think that there's a lot of Aggies who have national championship expectations – and I, I think it's a little early the, early for that, especially with the quarterback situation being uncertain. But I think I'd be happy with a 10-win season. 10-win season, I'm good. I don't need a natty this year. Yeah, I, I, I tell people, people don't realize Saban and Jimbo are both West Virginia boys, and it goes way, way yeah. back to Glenville State College and a lot of things that people just don't read about. And she like, I was like, you know, in the old days, you just take them out in the parking lot and leave them alone for five minutes. They could have worked that out, but now they're rich. So, we, you know, we got to have a national discussion <laughs> about it. Anyway. All right, Gary and Frankel, thanks for the talk, man. Love it. little levity on a heavy topic at the end is always a good thing. We'll talk again soon, my friend. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Thank you. Uh, we've been covering Sri Lanka on and off over the last few months for a lot of reasons. People are like, well, why do you cover Sri Lanka? Uh, they are having an absolute total economic collapse, but there's a lot of different stories that converge and cross streams on Sri Lanka. China's heavily involved there. The U.S. holds a lot of the bond debt there. India is involved, of course, because of their uh, proximity to Sri Lanka, and they're in a rock and a hard place because they've got to try to appease China and us at the same time, and that crosses in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka took on an enormous amount of debt during the pandemic because they were told, like a lot of developing and third world countries, hey, just spend whatever you want and the world will cover it. And they did, but the world didn't cover it. And China holds that debt. And as we've already covered on the show multiple times, China is very imperialistic. They're not doing it through arms and conquest. They do it through financing. So they are taking over chunks of Sri Lanka's economy, especially in the ports, as deferment on payments of those loans. China's debt comes with a price. All these stories are very important and have wide-ranging implications. That's why we keep covering Sri Lanka. It covers a lot of ground in a big old hurry. Now, new story uh, out of Sri Lanka from the New York Times, Colombo. Out of fuel and struggling to contain a deepening economic crisis, Sri Lanka on Friday ordered government employees to work from home to reduce the rush on public transportation. The government of President uh, Rajapaski has faced months of sustained protest over mismanagement of the economy. Let's pause right here. The ruling government that just got ran out, it was very nepotistic. It was staying in one family. We won't get into all that. Please read this for yourself. That's also the background on this. They just switched it over to another guy. Same problems. Back to the piece told the employees of state and education sectors to not show up to work for two weeks, according to a statement from the Ministry of Public Administration. Workers deemed essential were exempted. <laughs> Does this sound familiar? Sri Lanka had already reduced working days by declaring Friday a holiday and urged government employees to engage in hometown of gardening and cultivating short-term crops. Oh, by the way, there's no food now. Work from home announcement described a new order as a response to the situation where it's become difficult to satisfy transportation requirements. There's no gas and people can't get to work. A shortage of foreign cash reserves for essential import has worsened Sri Lanka's crisis, which has been attributed to mismanagement by members of the powerful ruling Rajapaska family. I'm still probably saying that wrong. Just bear with me. 
Among their catastrophic policies were tax cuts that shrunk revenue and a ban on chemical fertilizers to promote organic farming, which devastated farmers. Hey, anytime there's a food shortage, run that string down. You're going to find a farming policy problem down there somewhere. Months of protests have forced much of the Rajapansk, Rajapaska, Paksa. I'm going to get this right. We're going to work on it. Bear with me. Family, including the older brother Mahindra, who had served as prime minister and was ran out of the government, but go to buy a Rajapatska, we're going to keep practicing this, has held firm as president, introducing a new prime minister and hoping to attract the aid from friendly nations and engaging with the International Monetary Fund to restructure this country's mounting debt. The new prime minister has told that they would need $5 billion to import essential items over the next six months, much of it going towards fuel purchases. The country spends $500 million per month on fuel alone. Fuel queues ease slightly, but are still in high demand. Why are we covering this? If your government mismanages your money and you get into extreme debt, this is what happens every single time. It's a mathematical certainty that your economy will collapse if you mismanage your funds. We need to watch this in real time because we say, well, that'll never happen in America. Oh, yeah? We got trillions and trillions of dollars of debt. And while it won't be that sudden and that specific, the story will remain the same. You will become deemed and accountable to things you don't want to be when you are in debt, just like your home. If you're in debt personally, makes you make bad decisions. It makes you do desperate things. It goes for countries too. This is a warning to all of the developed world. You better get your financial house in order because if food and fuel runs out, the public ain't going to take that well. There's no politics that will assuage that. We've already seen what just minor fuel disruptions can do. Pay attention to Sri Lanka. Yes, indeed. It can happen here like it happened there. More hotel right after this. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Hurtel. You know, we always end on something a little uplifting, usually talking about charity things. This is a big number on a charity thing. How much would you pay to eat lunch with a legend? Well, if you've got a whole lot of money, apparently a lot, let's go to CNBC.com. Uh, a lucky and very wealthy person bid more than $19 million to dine with Warren Buffett in the 21st and final time that the billionaire businessman auctioned off a private lunch to benefit a San Francisco charity, the winning bid in the eBay auction that ended on Friday night far surpassed the previous record of $4.57 million that was paid in 2019. Proceeds benefit Glide, a nonprofit in San Francisco's Tenderloin District that helps the poor, homeless, or those battling substance abuse. Glide offers meals, shelters, HIV and hepatitis C tests, job training, and children's programming. Buffett 91 is, of course, the chairman and executive officer of Berkshire Hathaway has raised more than $53.2 million for Glide in the 21 auctions since 
2000. An eBay spokeswoman said the lunch was the most expensive item ever sold on the company's website to benefit charity. No auctions were held in 2020 and 2021 because of the COVID. So this is the first time it's returned. Buffett became a supporter of Glad after his first wife, Susan, who died in 2004, introduced him to the charity where she spent a lot of time volunteering. He has also pledged to give away nearly all of his fortune. Uh, Buffett was worth $93 billion as of Friday, ranking seventh worldwide. This year's auction winners and up to seven guests will dine with Warren Buffett at the Smith & Wolinsky Steakhouse in Manhattan. That's expensive enough on a good day. This is really making it expensive. Uh, those of you that aren't familiar with Smith & Wolinsky's, check the brand of your Worcestershire sauce. Might be that as well. Back to CNBC. Buffett will be talking about almost anything except investments. Uh, Buffett still owns nearly 16% of the Omaha-Nebraska conglomerate, despite having donated more than half of his shares, including $4 billion in June uh, 14th. Uh, amazing number. A really good charity, though. More power to them. I don't know that I'd pay that much money to have lunch with somebody, but I'm glad people will benefit from it. That'll do it for Hertel. Thank you so much for joining us on this Monday. Glad to be back in the swing of things. Again, we're doing these as best we can. There are going to be days that I miss out. If I do, just follow us on the social media. We'll try to keep you up to date there. But if there's gaps or lateness or whatever, that's what's going on with that. Feeling pretty good, doing the best. Uh, next eight to 12 weeks, this is just going to be the way it is until we retest. So hang in there with us. Uh, directly contact us. We'd love to hear from you at Show on the gmail.com at Show on the Twitter. Of course, my social media and our guest social media are always on the bottom third graphics of the video. Make sure you check those out. Follow those folks. Give them your support. Give them feedback. You disagree, whatever. Let us know. Just be respectful. Keep your bearing. Love to hear from you. We'll talk to you again next time on Tell. Till then, wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. Talk to you again real soon on Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com.